We're in the final week of a three-week series where we've been tackling a topic that is very, very important for all of us and something that has the potential to be extremely disruptive and destructive in our lives. It has the potential to ruin relationships and, and to cause tension and to even uh, conflict in ways that would destroy relationships, whether that be with your friends or your spouse or your children, uh, co-workers. This has the potential to be extremely destructive. And so we have to talk about this because of that. Um, pride has been described as conceit or egotism or vanity, uh, birthed out of something inside of us that would make us feel superior, more important uh, uh, than others. And pride causes us to display and to feel a sense, an inflated sense of our own worth or personal status and uh, look condescendingly at others. And this battle is no joke. And it's something, as we've talked over the last couple of weeks, that we also have to be very careful of because it seems as though in our culture, this thing that scriptures clearly, clearly identifies as sinful becomes something that we are quick to dismiss. And because of that, it bubbles inside of us in very unique and very challenging ways. Last first week, we talked about how we need to kill our pride before our pride kills us. And then last week, we started un unpacking together that this is not just a, a one-and-done thing where we deal with it maybe for a couple of weeks and then on we go, but rather this is a daily battle that we all are going to have to fight. And so last week, our main thought was that we need to kill our pride all day long. We need to be aware. We need to call it what it is and defeat it. Now, this challenge to fight our pride, if you will read your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, you will find verses and challenge and stories that are about dealing with our pride all throughout Scripture. It's so important. For example, James says this in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And when you, when you unpack the etymology of the word opposes and understand how strong of a, of a punch James was trying to communicate with, you, you will realize very quickly that what is being communicated here in this verse is that, is that God fights against, wages war against the proud. Nobody wants to be in a situation where we're dealing with that kind of, of uh, adjustment discipline from God, so we need to deal with this. This is important. God doesn't like us when we're proud. There's this, there's this ugliness that he knows has the potential to be destructive in all of our lives. He doesn't like it, pride. Peter says the exact same thing, uses the exact same words, brings the same powerful statement in 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And when you think about this, like I've become very addicted to God's grace. Man, I need it every day, and you do too. And so we want to position ourselves to understand, embrace, and live in his grace. And the only way that that can happen is when we deal with the pride in our lives. The stakes are super high, and I want all of us to get in the habit of calling pride what it is, sin, and dealing with pride when we see it, even in its little festering ways, that we would identify it and attack it. Last week, we talked about the three P people, who is all of us. If you missed it, please go back and listen online. Those who have power and prestige and possessions. And we uh, provided for you on our Facebook page a, a, a wallpaper image that you could download to your phone. And it was to remind us that the Most High is sovereign 
overall, to remember it's about him. And today I want to talk to another specific group of people, which ultimately, again, like last week, is all of us, because we have an epidemic in our culture today. And this epidemic in our culture today is, is not a new one, but it, there's a fuel on the fire of this epidemic um, because of what has become so common in our culture, this social media push that we all are now exposed to. And so we've become addicted to uh, folks looking at us and, and followers of us and people that like us and people that comment on our stuff and, and we've become addicted to putting things out there for others to see to kind of in many ways build our little empires instead of being about building the, the kingdom of God. And, and so all of us have this appetite to be known and friended and followed and liked and to be mentioned and recognized and admired and sought after. And I just want to state it to you in this most deep theological way I can and that's this. There's a little Kim Kardashian in all of us. Right? That's crazy when you think about it. I don't know if you thought about her notoriety much, but when you think about it, you're like, what did she do? But yet at the same time, we like to pay attention because she has somehow gotten so much attention for really doing nothing. And we all have inside of us a desire to be known and to be liked and paid attention to. We all live in some way for the applause. And I, I have been thinking about that this week, and we come by it pretty naturally. It starts when we're little, and some of you with young kids will know how this, how this plays because, because this is what you're dealing with right now because when our kids are little, they're like, Mom, Dad, watch! And they're going to like do a somersault that they've done like 50 times. And really what they want is for you to go, wow, that's awesome, great somersault, right? Although you've seen it a million times, but we do it. Why do we do it? Because we know that approval, we know that applause is important. Self-worth is important. But what happens if we're not careful, you see, is that we become addicted to this. Because I believe, and I have this little anecdotal theory, that being known and being applauded is an appetite. And the second you have a little bit of it, you want more of it. And if we're not careful, this becomes the motivation that we live our lives by. And so when we feed this and it grows, for whatever reason, there's also a challenge, and that is that it's never going to be fully satisfied. It doesn't matter how many people you have following you or liking you or paying attention to you, you kind of just want more. And this becomes this pretense that we live with put our best foot forward and pretend to be something perhaps that we're not so that we can get people to pay attention and like us. You're not going to hear people say, I've got enough friends, I've got enough followers, I've got enough likes. Um, we all want to be recognized for something. We all would like to see our name in print. We're created for connection and we want to be known and to be known is important. But when that takes over and it becomes about building our empire and our influence and our network rather than his kingdom, that's where we've crossed the line of danger. And so there's no amount of known that will satisfy our appetite for being known and whatever it is that you've determined that you want to be known for today, I want to talk to you about that and I want to challenge you from the word of God. And I'm going to jump around a little bit in this story that I want to share with you today because several of the gospel writers communicate about this story and um, we get details from a couple of the gospels that we need to kind of parse together. And so we're going to do that. Um, when we talk about um, this topic of pride and, and this predisposed kind of element in the DNA of our society to be known and liked and, and, and um, noticed, 
we have to know how to deal with this. And I don't mean that being known is wrong. I don't want you to assume that that's what I'm saying today. What I am saying is that we need to know what to do with being known. And we need to not allow that to take over our lives, but rather leverage that for the kingdom of God. And we need to know how to do that. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter one uh, as we begin. And and I'm gonna read to you uh, starting in verse four. The messenger was John the Baptist, and he was in the wilderness, and he preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Look at verse 5. You've probably read it before, some of you. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and to hear John. And you know, this is one of those verses that I've read before, and until you stop and and really think about what's being said, somebody say all. All. who, who, Who was all? That's everybody. And now when you read this story, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, all of Judea and all the people were coming out to hear John speak. It's a big deal. John has now got some mojo behind his ministry. There is some reputation building. People are wanting to know what this guy is all about and, and why is he teaching. And he's teaching in such a compelling way. The whole community, all, everybody. This isn't like the pictures you saw in Sunday school of like a couple ladies washing clothes in a river like, hey, hi, John. The whole place, like, it's like a festival. And it's going on for days. And people are drawn to his teaching and, and we're talking about a big crowd here, and it was a big enough deal that the religious leaders started to wonder who this guy was too. And so they're sending people to go see him and find out about him, and it would take a long time to walk to where he was, and this is like that big event of the year in the community that everyone wanted to be part of. Now, also, it's important for you to know that as far as history goes, um, there was this ceremony that was common among the Jews. They did this ceremonial cleansing, and they would baptize themselves. Up until this point, we've never seen anyone baptize anybody. It was all your own, on your own accord. You would go and you would say, I'm converting perhaps to, to Judaism. I'm going to embrace this lifestyle, so I'm going to go and I'm going to baptize myself in water, symbolizing the death of one way of living and the birth of a new way of living. And, but yet John does this thing differently. And so uh, as far as we know in history, no one ever baptized another person this way until John. So there's this buzz in the air. And now you also have to set it kind of in the context of what's happening and understanding culturally that, that, um, that, that, that the Jewish people are being held in many ways oppressed by this mighty strong Roman Empire. And what they were wanting and looking forward to, and even prophets had communicated that someday there was going to be this Messiah that would come and free his people. And they started seeing this in their minds as, a, as, a, as like this historical move, this next wave where the Jewish people would be freed and the Messiah would come. And in this political way and in this leader kind of way, set the people free. And so there's a lot of energy. People are starting to think that perhaps this revolution is about to break out. And so that's why there are these masses of people that are going into the wilderness to hear John speak and they're trying to figure out who he was. Now, turn if you have your Bibles to John chapter one, verse 15. John now, he's testifying concerning him. And John cries out saying, this is the one that I spoke about when I said, now you gotta look at this little riddle he's giving here, but it's deeply theological. Now listen to what he said. He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. 
And you're like, what? You guys think like sometimes you're like, Doug, what are you talking about? Like, I don't understand what you're saying. This is one of those, what is John talking about here? He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. What is this all about? Well, this is great theological truth of who Jesus is. He always has been. He is now, and he always will be, and, and Jesus is, is, is what this is all about, and he just lays it on the line. There's all of these questions about who John the Baptist is, and look at verse 19 in John chapter 1. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent the priests and the Levites to ask him who he was. Look at verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. That's a big deal. And I want to talk to all of us today that are drawn and pulled by this cultural tendency right now to want to be known, to want to make it about you, to make it about your empire and your little world. Are you ready? This is, this is powerful. You are not God. So quit trying to be. Don't try and make a kingdom to yourself. Be about the kingdom of God. Your knownness, whatever margin you might have in your life is really about him. And John made it clear right away. He's like, look, I just got to lay it on the line, guys. I am not the Messiah. I am not God. Somebody needs to go home and all week go, I am not God. I am not God. I am not God. I am not God. Because you've been trying to make life about you, and we have this misunderstanding of what this is all about. So look at verse 21. So then they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Now that sounds like a really weird question for someone to ask, especially if you know uh, the, the stories of the Bible. You realize they're talking about this prophet from the Old Testament a long, long time ago. They're saying, like, what are you, reincarnate Elijah here? Who are you? Why would someone say that? Well, it's because the prophet Malachi said that Elijah would appear just before God's next great act in the nation, in the narrative of Israel. And so he needs to clear this one up right away. He's like, no, I'm not God. And listen, no, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not Elijah. And then they said, are you a prophet? And he answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Who do you say, uh, who, what, what do you say about yourself? That's the question, guys. That's the question. I wonder what it is that you say about yourself. What is it? What is it? So that's an important question. The first thing we need to be reminded is that, that we're not God. And the second thing that really matters today as we think about people knowing us, it's important for us to, to settle this today. What is it? What is it that you say about who you are? And what is it ultimately that your life is all about? See, this is an important moment in the history of John. John has been asked a question and he's got a crowd and he's got people paying attention to him. And he has great influence in this moment. And he's asked this question. And the way that he stewards this moment is a lesson to you and I because we need to steward as well the influence that we have, whatever margin of influence we do have. So we need to ask this question, uh, what do you say about yourself? Everyone wants to know. It's, this is the moment. The eyes are on John. The eyes are on us. You're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. You've got people paying attention to you. John had a big crowd. Who are you? And his answer is fabulous. He quotes some words from the prophet Isaiah in John chapter 1, verse 23. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, you want to know what should be said about you to those that are paying attention. With whatever margin of influence you might have, 
in this world. What you need to say about yourself, what you need to know about yourself, what you need to know that God expects of us is this, that we're tour guides, that we're tour guides. And what we do when people watch us is point to Jesus. That's what this life is about. Not about likes and followers and how many people pay attention to you and listen to your voice and, and somehow want to be around you and, and hear what you have to say. No, we become a tour guide, you see, because we already know who it is that we're pointing towards. And we know how powerful he is. We know he's God and we're not. And we point to God. Now look what happens in verse 24. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Now, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or a prophet? And John says this, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. And he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. What is he saying here? And you have to know culturally speaking what's taking place here because it would be a servant's role to untie someone's sandals Dirty feet because dirty roads and walking in place. Sometimes they didn't even have sandals. But what would that look like for the servants would then wash the feet of those that were guests in their home? And what John is saying is, listen, who I'm trying to point you to is such a big deal and is so important and is so significant that I am not even worthy to be his servant. He is such a big deal that I can't untie his sandals to wash his feet, that's how big of a deal he is. And for all of us, you see that as we understand um, the, the influence and the, the potential that we have to make a difference for him, see, we have to understand our place as well. We have to understand who we are in light of the kingdom of God and the role that God has in our lives and, Lord willing, in the lives of others. He's basically saying, you guys, just wait. The real deal is coming. This Jesus, he can change your life. And it's going to be different. I'm the warm-up band. He's the real deal. And you see me and you got this excitement about what I'm saying. But really all I'm saying is that I want to point to Jesus because Jesus is the one that's going to be life-changing. Look at verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, look, there he is. And this is what I want people to see in you and me. Look, look, you see this. Look at him. Look at him. It's about Jesus Anything that you see in us and in us as a church is about pointing others to understand and know who Jesus is. Don't build your kingdom, build his. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They've got to see this. This is so important in our culture, in this, in this uh, look at me culture, in this like follow me culture and click to like me culture. Look what, look what we see in verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And look at verse 37. When the two disciples heard him say this, now you, I need to clear this up for you so you understand. This is talking about people that were disciples or followers of John the Baptist at the time. When these two uh, disciples heard him say this, look, look, look what happens. They followed Jesus. That's what they did, and because John was doing his job. But you see, you have to understand too, and again, in our culture, this is important. They unfollowed John to go follow Jesus. That's what it was all about. You see, it's not about who follows me, who likes me, who follows you, who likes you. It's about how many people, this is crazy, anti-cultural, how many people can I get to unfollow all of us? 
to start following Jesus. That's what it's about. And so in this world where we have a misunderstanding of what life is about and pride comes in and takes over and we want to build our own empire, we want to have great influence and we think that's what this is about, accumulating all of these things, don't miss this. They unfollowed John and started following Jesus. This bothered the followers of John. Those that were part of the John the Baptist Club started to freak out. So you gotta see what happens next. This is what happens when we have following somehow mixed up in our head. Look at verse 26. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, listen, listen. He's copycatting you. That's what they're saying. They said, look, he's, he's baptizing people. That's your gig, John. You're the one that does that. You're the baptizer. You invented this. And look, they said, everyone is unfollowing you, John, and going to him. They were worried about their little group. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what's given to them from heaven. I hope that sounds eerily familiar to last week. When I challenged you with the thought that the Most High is sovereign over all. Guys, can I tell you, being known is temporary. And whatever knownness you have and I have is about one thing. Stewarding that well and pointing to Jesus. That's what it is. And that's our responsibility. This is a very different perspective than the world around us, the culture around us. Credit, recognition, status, and influence are gifts. All given, all given by God. Look at verse 28. John said, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. So here's our main thought. Write this down. This is huge. This this could be a monumental, pivoted point in your life. I am known to make him known. I am known to make him known. He continues in verse 29, and he's starting to pick up some steam here, and this is important for us to see this and to catch this. Now, this doesn't seem like what someone should say that's getting unfollowed. This isn't what we would say when we're watching our our numbers of likes going down because the attention is on Jesus. Now, look what he says, though. He says this. He says, look, the joy is mine And it is now complete. Look at verse 30. This is it. This is the pinnacle point. He must become greater and I must become less. Doesn't that sound so anti-cultural to this world that you and I live in? See, really what this world is about is propping ourselves up to look better than to somehow stand out to the rest of the world around us so that people will like us, so that people will follow us, so that we can have some kind of social standing that's going to make us feel better about ourselves that's fueled by the evil and nastiness of pride in our life. No, guys, listen. To fight our pride, what we must know every day is that he must become greater and I must become less. What if there was some way that I could magically wave a wand over your social media so that instead of giving an indication to how many likes and how many followers you have, What if it showed to all of us here how many people are following Jesus because of you? Mm. Did I just step on somebody's toes? 
You see, it's a completely different way of living, isn't it? When we understand that whatever influence you might have and I might have is not to put the attention on ourselves, but to put the attention to Jesus. And that all of a sudden, joy looks different. Fullness of life is who he wants us to be and what he wants us to experience in joy in life. Guys, listen, I'm gonna tell you what joy in life is all about. It's about people that follow Jesus. That you have an opportunity to direct the attention towards the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords when we're more concerned about building his empire instead of our empire. It's a whole different way of living. I am known to make him known. He must become greater. I must become less. Your appetite, friends, to be known will never be satisfied by the number of followers you have or the recognition or rewards that you might get. Whatever influence you might have, whether it's at work, if it's in your own home, if it's in your neighborhood. Listen, I wonder how many people that live close to you know that you love Jesus. Not that you go to church, but that you love Jesus. How many know? The families that are doing life with you because of your kids' activities at school and in their community. Do they know you love Jesus by the way you act, by the things you say, by the way that you prioritize your life? Do they know about Jesus? Are we pointing people to Jesus? Are we pointing them to Jesus? The people you work with, in the cube next to you, your employees, if you're a teacher, the influence you have. Students, listen to me, you're getting ready to start school again. And we need to learn to make life more about the people that follow Jesus because of our influence than how many people follow us on social media. And when we make that the priority, see, everything changes. We push our pride down and we raise Jesus up. We live in a culture that's flipped this, inverted this, and it's not the way it should be. In your knownness, how many now know Jesus? That's the question. Those are the followers that count. And you know, this has been such a unique couple of days for me heading into this message because I've been reminded how short life is. And every once in a while, all of us are going to have a moment like I had this last Friday night where I'm just reminded that life is quick and I don't want to die with regrets. I don't want to die building an empire to myself or, or you building an empire to yourself. I want us to, to know that we, can, that we can one day walk into and through the gates of heaven and hear the Lord of Lords say to us, well done, well done. And you see, that's what life is about. Guys, listen, we must be about building his empire. Pride will distort this. The enemy will work us over. The, 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 the pressure of the current of this world that you and I are living in is drawing us towards making life about ourselves instead of about him. It's a scary place to be. You will never be fully satisfied until you solve this. Until this is fixed in our hearts. So what if, starting today, you and I could, count, count, could start counting the followers of Jesus because of our influence instead of how many friends we have on Facebook? That would be a worthy cause. It's what we talk about around here, right? What's our job? 
and change lives, changing lives, and we make Jesus famous. We make him famous.